Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. First up, we've got Justin Morgenstern on the latest New England Journal study on treating large, spontaneous pneumothoraces without a chest tube. The PSP trial, Conservative Management of Primary Spontaneous Pneumothorax. This is an RCT published in the New England Journal of Medicine, February 2020, that I think will change practice for a lot of emergency doctors. Although I don't think it's going to change my practice much. So this is a multi-center, open-label, non-inferiority trial where they took patients aged 14 to 50 years of age with primary spontaneous pneumothorax that was bigger than 32% using the Collins method. We'll put a picture in the show notes, but all you really need to know is they were focusing on larger pneumothorax, not small. And these patients got randomized to either get a chest tube, they got a small bore, 14 French or less tube. Unlike Canadian practice, where most of these patients get a Heimlich valve and are sent home as outpatients, all of these patients were put on suction. They could get sent home if their pneumo completely resolved on a one-hour follow-up x-ray and then stayed gone after four hours of observation with a chest tube clamped. They compared the chest tube to nothing. The conservative management group was watched for four hours, and as long as they were vitally stable, able to walk, and not requiring supplemental oxygen, they were sent home. They included 316 patients, although they had to screen 2,600 over six years to find them. And the patients are exactly what you would expect. Young, skinny males and about half were smokers. The primary outcome was the percentage of patients with radiologic cure, no pneumo on their x-ray at eight weeks. It occurred in 98.5% of the chest tube group and 94.4% of the conservative management group. And because they set their non-inferiority cutoff as 9%, they conclude that conservative therapy is non-inferior to invasive management. If instead of focusing on the x-ray, you look at symptoms, the conservative group was about 1% better at 8 weeks. 94 versus 93% of patients had no symptoms at all. There are a bunch of secondary outcomes, but just a few that I think are important. The pneumo took about 2 weeks longer on average to resolve based on the x-ray in the conservative group. However, getting a chest tube resulted in longer hospital stays, more time off work, more CT scans, and more recurrence. Maybe most important, serious adverse events were more common in the invasive management group. Now, there are some issues with this trial. They set the non-inferiority margin at 9%, but a lot of us might consider that too big a gap to consider equal. They had to screen a lot of patients, so selection bias is a problem. They lost a lot of patients to follow-up, and there was crossover between the groups. Perhaps the biggest issue is the choice of outcomes. Radiologic resolution is not a patient-oriented outcome. Nobody cares what their x-ray looks like. Patients care about feeling better, recurrence, and adverse events. However, for obvious reasons, this was an unblinded trial, so subjective outcomes like how do you feel are more likely to be biased. So that's why the authors chose the less relevant but more objective outcome of radiologic cure. Despite those limitations, I think the results of the trial are probably right. A chest tube is likely to make your x-ray look better faster, and that might matter to you if your pneumo occurred while you were traveling and you need to get on a plane home. 
But otherwise, plastic in your plural space isn't likely to make you feel any better and does result in adverse events. So with that in mind, I think that this trial tells us that a lot of these patients should probably be managed without a chest tube. So why did I say at the beginning that this wasn't going to change my practice? Well, because I've been treating many of these patients conservatively for years. There are multiple observational studies that saying not all, but many of these patients resolve completely without a chest tube, and it appears safe to give them a shot. There's a post with those references on first 10 EM. So what do I do? If the patient is vitally stable, if they're comfortable in the ED, if they live close enough to the hospital to get back in case they get worse, and if they can understand the decision, then I discuss the options of chest tube versus watchful waiting. And to tell you the truth, most of my patients prefer watchful waiting. That sort of sucks for me because I love putting in chest tubes, but I think it's clearly better for my patients. It's the right thing to do. In 2020, management of opioid withdrawal in the emergency department is buprenorphine naloxone. If you're not prescribing buprenorphine, you have some catching up to do. Opioid agonist treatment, or OAT, is the only evidence-based treatment to reduce opioid overdose death and reduce ED visits. As a partial opioid agonist, buprenorphine is a very safe medication. Don't be afraid of it. What you should be afraid of, though, is precipitated withdrawal, and this is the main barrier to starting buprenorphine in the ED. I'm going to illustrate this using two cases. First case, and this is a real patient, A 25-year-old female with a history of opioid use disorder, not on therapy, comes in with a fever and a new cardiac murmur. You suspect endocarditis and refer her to cardiology. After several hours, she becomes increasingly agitated and states that she's in withdrawal and wants to leave. She last injected fentanyl over 24 hours ago and her cow score is a whopping 26. You appropriately prescribe buprenorphine and she settles quickly after 12 milligrams. She ends up with a valve replacement, has a prolonged hospital stay, and does very well after discharge. Great outcome. We know patients with an opioid use disorder who are in withdrawal, who are not treated appropriately for their withdrawal, are at very high risk of leaving against medical advice. If you need a refresher around buprenorphine dosing, please refer to the EM cases in opioid misuse, overdose, and withdrawal from October 2018. Second case. A 32-year-old male comes into the ED as he would like to stop using fentanyl and is asking for your help. He injects three points per day with his last use 30 minutes ago. Three of his friends have recently died and he does not want to be the next. You consider buprenorphine. However, you know that if you prescribe it too early, the buprenorphine is going to displace the fentanyl and you're going to precipitate a withdrawal. You now have two options. First, you can wait until your patient is in withdrawal. However, none of us is going to do this because of the incredibly long length of stay. The second option is to prescribe buprenorphine to go. My practice is to provide patients with six 2-milligram tabs to take home with them. I tell patients to wait until they are in withdrawal and then take 4 milligrams of buprenorphine every 1 to 2 hours as needed to a maximum of 12 milligrams in the first 24 hours. They will then need a prescription for 12 milligrams of buprenorphine to bridge them until they can be seen in follow-up. So, first option, waiting for the patient to go into withdrawal. Not great. Second option is pretty good. 
But what if your patient reports they cannot tolerate withdrawal or that they are not willing to go through the discomfort of withdrawal? Or perhaps they tried buprenorphine before and experienced precipitated withdrawal. Well, there is another option called microdosing. The idea behind microdosing is to sneak buprenorphine at very low doses onto the receptors and increase this dose daily. If done in this way, the risk of precipitated withdrawal is minimal. Patients can continue to take opioids at the same time without a risk of precipitated withdrawal. Although there is no clear RCT, there have been several case reports and case series published, and microdosing is now the norm in outpatient opioid agonist therapy clinics. In fact, there is some thought that we should be starting all patients on buprenorphine using the microdosing protocol due to the unpredictability of the endless fentanyl analogs being present in bootleg fentanyl. The concern is that even if patients seem to be in moderate to severe withdrawal, precipitated withdrawal can occur due to the accumulation of fentanyl in peripheral tissues, as remember, fentanyl is a lipophilic drug. The dosing is fairly simple, and you can write a script for a few days or a week, depending on time to follow up. You can have the patients go to the pharmacy daily or prescribe it all at once, ideally in a blister pack. Or you can dispense the entire supply from your emergency department. Usually, by 8 or 12 milligrams, the patients are able to stop whatever opioid they are using without any withdrawal. There are various microdosing protocols available online. Some use OD dosing and some use BID dosing. One is not better than the other. I will reference some of these protocols in the show notes. So to review, patients who are not yet in withdrawal are at risk of precipitated withdrawal with an ED buprenorphine start. You can either, one, have them wait in the ED until they are in withdrawal, which is not realistic, and then initiate them. Two, prescribe or provide a supply for home induction on day one, usually six 2-milligram tablets to a maximum of 12 milligrams in 24 hours. Or three, utilize a novel microdosing induction protocol. All right, so far we've covered watchful waiting for spontaneous pneumothoraces based on the latest New England Journal study, a good option that you and your patient may prefer over a chest tube. And we talked about the option of microdosing buprenorphine for opioid use disorder, which might also be preferable over sending them home on the usual acute withdrawal dosing. Next up, we've got Aaron Seyal. He's going to take the pediatric elbow crito thing that we all learned once upon a time and zero in on the most important aspects of it so that we don't miss two key fractures in kids, the lateral condyle fracture and the medial epicondyle fracture. Good day, everyone. So for this installment of our Ortho Quick Hits, we're going to chat about commonly missed kids' elbow fractures and specifically on how the mnemonic CRITO, C-R-I-T-O-E, will help you on your next shift. So supracondylars are the most common peds elbow fractures, and that's around 70%. And we're actually going to set those aside for this segment. We're going to concentrate on the bulk of the other 30%. If we don't know what's on the list, we can't diagnose them. And if we see them on our next shift, guess what? They're going to be missed. And we're going to talk about how cretification centers, they appear at different ages, often looks like a dog's breakfast. How can we make any sense of them? And creto helped a little bit. And unless you really understand the clinical significance, you won't get the most you can out of that, that mnemonic. So let's go through this. So it does help us with the names. C is capitellum. That's the distal humerus on the lateral side. This is the first to appear. Next would be the R, its neighbor, the radial head. Then I, 
the internal or medial epicondyle, followed by T, which is the neighbor of the eye. T is the trochlea, the medial aspect of the distal humerus. So these first two are kind of paired up. Capitalum radius are on the lateral side. The internal and the uh, medial epicondyle and the trochlea are on the, the medial side. Olecranon O is best seen on the lateral. And finally, there's the E, the or the external or the lateral epicondyle. And again, they always appear in this order. C, then R, then I, T, O, and finally E. Some may recall another mnemonic is a rough estimate of the age at which they appear. Girls, odd years, boys, even. So for ossification centers around the elbow, each letter of Kretos corresponds to the appearance of an odd-numbered year. So roughly 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, 11 years of age for girls. Meaning C appears around 1 year of age, R around 3, and so on, until you get to the lateral epicondyle around 11 years of age. For boys, just use the, the even numbers. 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12. So C typically appears around 2 years of age and the E around 12. But these are just rough estimates. Really, it can be plus or minus 18 months uh, from those estimates. But for any particular child, the opposite elbow should be about 3 or 4 months close to the affected, the other side. So if you want an estimate, x-ray the opposite side, uh, it's a far better indicator uh, of what normal is for that child. So now that we've got that, we understand the names, the order they appear, and even the ages. How, how does this help me on my next shift? So if we know which Pete's elbow fractures were missing, we will see how Crito comes in handy. So let's chat a little bit about the epidemiology of Pete's elbow fractures. Again, most common supracondylar, 70%. But the second most common are lateral condyle fractures. And I'll tell you, in the eMERGE department, these tend to be commonly missed and commonly mismanaged. And they're about 15% of Pied's elbow fractures. Third most common Pied's elbow fracture is a medial epicondyle fracture. These come in at around 10%. These are often missed as well. And as an orthopedic surgeon uh, once said to me, I think those diagnoses are seeing you more than you are seeing them. And he was right. I'm sure I missed these my first 2000 shifts before I started working with the surgeons. And I'll tell you how Crito helps identify them. So beware of these lateral condyle fractures, because they're often missed and often operative. Lateral condyle fractures are typically seen in kids between 3 to 4 and, say, 8 years of age. Often diagnosed as an occult supracondylar fracture, because we see an elbow effusion and miss a subtle fracture line. And if seen, then are often mislabeled as an undisplaced supracondylar, because we saw a fracture line and we saw an effusion, but didn't recognize this was actually that less common uh, lateral condyle fracture. Here's how Crito helps. If you see a lucency on the distal humerus and it looks like an ossification center, but it's just above the capitellum, that, if it were an ossification center, would be the E, the external. And what age should that show up? 10, 11, 12 years of age. But if you see that in a younger child, so you see the C, the capitellum, you see the R, the radial head, and then you see a little subtle line over the top of the C. That can't be the ossification center of E because it shouldn't show up until afterwards, until after you see the I, the T, the O, and then you're allowed to see the E. So that subtle lucency in the younger child above the capitellum, that has to be a fracture. And that's a lateral condyle fracture, and it's not the ossification center that's pulled off. It's a fracture through the distal aspect of the humerus. And if it's one or two millimeters displaced, it's often operative. These kids have a high risk of non-union, and that means a reduction in K-wires in the operating room. So we need to identify them. 
Because if they need an operation, we need to let ortho know. That's really our goal is to pick up what's operative. Now, the 10% of Pete's elbow fractures that are the medial epicondyle, how does Crito help identify that? Well, the medial epicondyle is the origin of the ulnar collateral ligament of the elbow. So a valgus strain to the elbow, a force that bends the elbow in medially, that can injure that ligament. Or in a child with open growth plates, it can avulse or pull off the medial epicondyle. This injury typically occurs in a 12 to 16-year-old child. The fragment can be separated by millimeters, or that, that, that medial epicondyle can be completely pulled off and sitting in the joint. So there's a spectrum to injury. If it's pulled off, but still nearby, you may need an x-ray of the other side to document exactly how far it's separated. You need to know what normal is, and then you can see how much, dis- how much displacement there is. So up to 5 to 10 millimeters is acceptable. And if you're not sure if that position is actually okay or not, just ask ortho for their management advice. But if it's less than 10 millimeters, typically it's treated non-operatively, and that means a back slab and close follow-up. Again, contrast that to the lateral condyle, where only one or two millimeters is acceptable for a lateral condyle fracture. Now, if the medial epicondyle is totally pulled off, it may be floating in the joint. And this may be missed altogether. But if you consider Crito, then in reviewing the films, you'll look for each ossification center. After finding C and R, you may notice the I is not there. But if you see T and if you see O and E, the I has to be there somewhere because it appears before the T and before the O. They always appear in that order. And if you don't see it, guess what? It's floating in the joint somewhere. You got to go hunting for it. And it's very easy to miss. But knowing Crito and the fact that the ossification centers always appear in that specific order, again, this will start the search to find the I and then recognize if it's displaced. So again, lateral condyle fractures, if they're one or two millimeters off and they're displaced, that's surgical. Medial epicondyle fractures can be up to five to 10 millimeters of displacement and still be treated conservatively with a back slab and non-operative. But as uncommon as these injuries are, if you diagnosed either of them, good for you. It's, it really is good for you to pick this up because they're hard to pick up. But then at a reasonable hour, seven in the morning till 11 o'clock at night, let's say, I think it's reasonable to just pick up the phone and talk to orthopedics about appropriate management because some of these are really subtle and let them triage follow up. If you weren't sure if what you were seeing was actually a lucency on the lateral side, or is that really the medial epicondyle pulled off? You can just ask for an extra the opposite side, and now you compare apples to apples. And if you still at the end of this want the opinion of somebody, I'm going to suggest to you, ask orthopedics and not radiology. Orthopedics sees these way more often, and what we really want is both diagnostic as well as management advice. And that only comes from ortho. So in summary, kids' elbows are tricky. Slow down. Expand your differential beyond supracondylar. Crito helps. But dig a little deeper for the clinical significance. E should be the last to appear. If it's seen too early in a younger child, that's a lateral condyle fracture. And if you see T and you see O, you see the trochlea, you see electron, you need to see the I, the medial epicondyle. If you don't, it's probably sitting in the joint. Hope this helps on your next shift. Next up, we've got Dr. Jeffrey Perry, world-renowned EM researcher, who's going to tell us about the TIA score. Now, the workup and treatment of TIA has evolved over the last couple of decades, which we covered in detail with Walter Himmel and Dave Deshensky on our fairly recent TIA episode. But my question for Dr. Perry here is, what does this TIA score contribute to this evolution in practice when it comes to TIA? 
we've been looking at uh, the management and trying to stratify risk for patients with TIA for since about 2006, so for quite some time. And essentially what we did was we previously had a derivation study where we derived a potential score, which we called the Canadian TIA score. And we identified quite a few variables, I must say. There's uh, sort of 13 variables that you need to collect that you would then score to give you a reliable risk for subsequent stroke within seven days. So we previously did, did this work and published it in stroke, but before any clinical decision score or rule can be used, it really needs to be prospectively validated. So what we've recently done, and we presented this at some conferences so far, and the pub manuscript is under peer review, we've now finished a prospective validation study in 7,600 plus patients where we've now validated that the Canadian TIA score is reliable to use. We certainly recommend that clinicians use this score to help them manage their patients who they diagnose with TIA in the emergency department. So what this rule or the score does is it takes the clinical features, and the features in, in included are if it's the first TIA in their life, their symptoms last greater than 10 minutes, if they're known to have a past history of carotid stenosis, if they're already on antiplatelet therapy, if they have a history of a gait disturbance with this event, if they have a history of unilateral weakness with this event, if they have a history of vertigo with this event, and that's a negative predictor, and if their initial diastolic blood pressure is elevated greater than or equal to 110, and if they have any speech deficits, so either dysarthria or aphasia. We go on to look at their investigations in the eMERGE, and if they're in atrial fibrillation, that's a risk. If they have an infarction on their neuroimaging, and if they have elevated platelets greater than or equal to 400, or their glucose is greater than or equal to 15 millimoles per liter. And from that, we have different point values, and we're able to come up with a score between minus 3 and 23, we're able to, to reliably stratify patients into a low, medium, and high risk group. And for this validation study, we set it up so that we'd look at both early stroke or if they go on to have an early carotid revascularization procedure within seven days. And we chose that because if that's happening more and more frequently, if you take out those high risk patients, you get a, uh, a very distorted result. So we were able to classify people again to low, medium, and high. We found that 16.3% were low-risk patients. Most were medium-risk, 72%. And then there was just under 12% that were high-risk. So the low-risk patients, the number of them having a subsequent event uh, was very low. It was, it was uh, less than 0.7% whereas we had about 2 to 2.5% risk for the medium-risk patients, and then the high-risk patients were 6% or higher for subsequent early stroke. So with that, we think clinicians are going to be able to much better determine how to manage their patients, with the low-risk patients likely just getting an ECG and a CT head and then outpatient follow-up with their possibly even just their family doctor and or delayed specialist follow-up, depending on what resources are available in the community. 
the medium risk patients we suspect will need more done in the emergency. So they'll probably need to get their necks imaged while they're in the emergency in addition to the ECG and CT. And the high-risk patients likely need to, uh, at the very least, be seen by a specialist in the eMERGE, optimally managed, if not admitted, uh, to hospitals so that we can sort of do everything humanly possible to diminish their risk immediately. I just got one question. Was there any consideration in developing this TIA score for which patients should be considered for dual antiplatelet therapy? You know, it's pretty common practice now to put the so-called high-risk TIA patient on both ASA and clopidogrel for a few weeks after their TIA. So is this something that your score addressed? So we would probably need to look at this certainly with further study to definitively answer this. But based on the chance and the point studies that you're you're alluding to, certainly it would be the high-risk patients definitely would be patients that we'd want to use dual antiplatelets for, and likely the medium risk as well, quite frankly. But the definitely the high risk and the, the medium risk, we'd probably need to do some further study to absolutely know. But uh, certainly the ones that are sort of high-medium, shall we say, I would uh, advocate for dual antiplatelets. Great. So I understand that the TIA score will be available in the Ottawa Rules app wherever you get your apps soon. We'll have Dr. Perry back on the show next time to review his subarachnoid hemorrhage decision tool, which has saved me and my patients many LPs over the last few years. Next up, we have Sarah Reed with an update on pediatric sepsis. Now, we covered this topic in detail in episode 50, Recognition Management of Pediatric Sepsis and Septic Shock, with Dr. Reed. That was a few years back, if you need a refresher. Take it away, Sarah. The new Surviving Sepsis Guidelines for Kids were published in February 2020, and we'll just spend a few minutes going over five issues that are highlighted in the guidelines for our management in the emergency department. The guidelines define septic shock as severe infection leading to cardiovascular dysfunction, so that could be impaired perfusion, the need for vasopressors, or hypotension. So the first issue is fluids. You might remember the FEAST trial back in 2011. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it compared a 20 cc per kilo bolus of saline versus a bolus of albumin versus no bolus in kids with septic shock in a multi-center trial in Africa. And the results showed a decreased mortality at 48 hours in those kids that did not get bolused. So in the 2015 PALS update, we saw a caution about overdoing the fluids if you worked in a resource-limited setting. So these new 2020 guidelines are a bit more prescriptive, and they state that if you work in a healthcare system with intensive care, you can bolus 40 to 60 cc's per kilo over the first hour and titrate to the patient's response as long as there's no signs of fluid overload. If you work in a healthcare system without intensive care and the patient is not hypotensive, they recommend against bolusing and suggest maintenance fluid instead. And if you work in a resource-limited setting and the patient is hypotensive, you can still give up to 40 cc's per kilo of fluid over the first hour and titrate that based on clinical markers of cardiac output, backing off the fluids if there's signs of fluid overload. Frequent reassessments of those clinical markers should include heart rate, blood pressure, cap refill, level of consciousness, urine output, and they recommend serial lactate and advanced monitoring if you have that available. 
Signs of fluid overload that will limit further bolusing in kids would be hepatomegaly and crackles. Crystalloids are recommended and not albumin, starches, or gelatin. And something new in the 2020 guidelines is that they recommend balanced or buffered crystalloids over normal saline, despite there being a low quality of evidence in kids. The second issue is cold versus warm shock. So you'll recall that historically we've used the terms cold and warm shock to describe how kids present, either peripherally shut down in cold shock or with wide pulse pressure and bounding pulses in warm shock. And that helped us to make treatment decisions about which vasopressor to start. The new guidelines suggest not using bedside clinical signs in isolation to categorize warm versus cold shock because there's a very poor correlation between the clinical assessment with cardiac index and systemic vascular resistance as measured by advanced monitoring. So in other words, what we do at the bedside is not particularly demonstrative of what the physiology is actually doing. So the guidelines recommend using advanced monitoring, if available, and using trends in blood lactate to guide the resuscitation in addition to the clinical assessment. So still do what you do at the bedside, but just remember that it's not always reflective of what exactly is going on. Number three is vasopressors. So these new guidelines suggest using epi or norepi rather than dopamine in children with septic shock. They felt unable to issue a recommendation about which one was better or which to recommend as first line or when to initiate vasopressor therapy, but state that it's reasonable to begin vasopressors after 40 to 60 cc's per kilo of fluid has been given if the perfusion is still abnormal and that you can use either epi or norepi through the peripheral IV or IO. The guidelines also state that norepi has never been studied in children in septic shock, and there are no head-to-head studies of norepi versus epi. And actually, the panel members that wrote the guidelines equally use epi or norepi, so either is fine. They state that dopamine can be substituted as the first-line infusion, either centrally or peripherally, if epi or norepi is not readily available. And they also mentioned the Canadian multi-center squeeze trial that's ongoing right now, comparing standard care versus a fluid sparing strategy with early vasoactive meds, and just state that this may give us a bit more information about when we should start vasopressors and how much fluid really should be given in septic kids. The fourth issue is ventilation. There's not much new here. They felt unable to issue a specific recommendation about whether to intubate children with fluid refractory catecholamine-resistant shock. They suggest that doing a trial of non-invasive mechanical ventilation if uh, there's lung involvement, as long as the patient does not have a clear indication for intubation and are responding well to initial resuscitation. The non-invasive is very reasonable in that circumstance. They talk about how with the increased metabolic demand for refractory shock that leads to lactic acidemia and, and organ dysfunction, that mechanical ventilation done early can at least in part mitigate this spiral. They warn about the fact that when we give medications for intubation and we switch the patient from spontaneous breathing to PPV, we can have hypotension and even cardiac arrest. So that just goes to the intubate after you've resuscitated issue. They recommend against using Etomidate, and they don't make any other recommendations about medications for intubation, but state that ketamine and fentanyl remain a reasonable choice. Lastly, There has always been a recommendation to think about hydrocortisone in kids who are persistently shocky after fluids and pressors, so-called fluid refractory catecholamine-resistant kids. But the new 2020 guidelines say that you may or may not use it in that circumstance in a child who's got ongoing instability after fluids and pressors. So they state that there really are no studies that either support or refute the use of hydrocortisone in this circumstance, although there is one that's ongoing. 
And they state that you really should not use hydrocortisone in a child who's stabilizing with fluids and pressors. They do warn that this does not apply to kids who have primary or secondary adrenal insufficiency or kids, for example, who've had recent steroid therapy, as they may very much need steroids in order to reverse their shock. And that's a little update on the 2020 Surviving Sepsis Guidelines for Kids. All right, that was a lot on pediatric sepsis and septic shock. Let's review the key points here. So first, fluids. Now, if you work in a resource-limited setting without access to PICU, don't bolus crystalloids. Give maintenance fluids instead, unless the patient is hypotensive. If you do have access to a PICU, you can bolus 40 to 60 mils per kilogram in the first hour. And when it comes to the crystalloid of choice, they recommend balanced or buffered crystalloid over normal saline. So, for example, Ringer's lactate. Then there's the cold versus warm shock thing. So don't hang your hat on clinical assessment alone to determine if a patient is in cold or warm shock, which would then guide vasopressor choice. And talking about vasopressor choice, the first-line vasopressor, after 40 to 60 milliliters per kilogram of balanced crystalloid, is either epinephrine or norepinephrine through a peripheral IV or IO. And then lastly, we still don't have good evidence for steroids in kids in fluid-resistant septic shock, so the guidelines remain on the fence, unless, of course, the kid has recently been on steroids or has adrenal insufficiency. Okay, last but not least, we have my friend Salim Rizay, who, by the way, will be the guest faculty for the third annual podcast camp slotted for October 3rd and 4th in Toronto. Hopefully COVID will be under control by then, and we'll be able to congregate and learn all about medical education podcasting from Salim and myself. Go to podcastcamp.org for updates and details. And just to note that this segment was recorded before the COVID pandemic hit. Welcome back to another Best of Rebel EM. This is Salim Rezaei. And this past month, the hot topic on our site was the safety of using peripheral vasopressors. Now, traditionally, vasopressors have been given through central venous catheters in the critically ill. But the time it takes to place a central venous catheter in a patient who's sick is not insignificant. And letting that patient stay hypotensive is also not a good thing. So we know that earlier initiation of vasopressors can be associated with reduced mortality by helping increase end organ perfusion. So now there's been this growing trend to use vasopressors through peripheral IVs. Now running pressors through the peripheral IV has a couple of important benefits. It includes faster time to presser initiation and no need for invasive procedures like a central venous catheter. But There's very little evidence to support the safety of this practice other than one big systematic review, which basically looked at a bunch of case reports and case series. So today, what we're going to discuss is a paper that evaluates the very question of, are peripheral vasopressors safe? This is probably the highest quality evidence we have on this topic. It was a systematic review evaluating the safety of delivering vasopressor medications via peripheral IV access. Their primary outcome was they were trying to evaluate adverse events related to the use of peripheral vasopressors. And the way they defined this was extravasation, skin necrosis, limb ischemia, compartment syndrome, infection, and any other reported complications that required some type of surgical or medical treatment. Now, the authors were able to identify seven trials meeting their inclusion criteria with 
just over 1,300 patients, and just over 1,400 episodes of peripheral vasopressor administration. Now, for the primary outcome extravasation events, this was documented in 35 cases, which gives us an event rate of about 3.4%. Now, the most important thing in this paper is that there were zero reported cases of tissue necrosis or limb ischemia, and the majority of extravasation events were managed conservatively or with vasodilatory medications. Now, before we get all excited and everybody goes starts running peripheral vasopressors, I think there's a couple of things we need to kind of discuss here. So first of all, the studies that were included were mostly observational or case series without comparison groups. So these are not randomized clinical trials. With all that said, this study makes it reassuring that the rate of extravasation events is quite low. It's also important to remember that the use of peripheral vasopressors is a bridge to something else and not prolonged infusions. That would mean either the patient improves and comes off vasopressors, or that means they don't improve, in which case a midline catheter or a central venous catheter should be placed. Now, I'd like to take one step to the side and just mention extravasation events, because I think this is something that the event rate is obviously not zero. And if you read through the literature, the rate is anywhere from three to 6%. So this means if you do this enough, this will happen. And so I wanted to just take a few minutes to kind of go through how I manage somebody who has an extravasation event. So the first thing is, is you leave the catheter in place, slowly aspirate as much of the drug as possible. At this point, you have several medication options. So option one would be fentolamine, which will go through the catheter. And the dose you'll use is 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams per kilogram up to a max of 10 milligrams. You also want to inject some subcutaneously around the site where the extravasation occurred. And this is usually 5 milligrams per ml mixed in 9 mls of saline. And you want to use a small gauge needle when you're doing this, something like a 25 or 27 gauge needle. Now, with drug shortages, you may not have fentolamine. So a second option is terbutaline. And you can dilute 1 milligram in 10 mls of 0.9% normal saline. You inject 5 mls through the catheter, and you inject the remaining 5 mls subcutaneously. Now, the blanching should reverse immediately, but if it doesn't, you can give subsequent subcutaneous doses every 15 minutes. Now, in addition to either one of these medications, you want to use topical nitroglycerin 2%. You apply 1-inch strip to the site of ischemia, and you can redose this every 8 hours as needed. At this point, you can remove the catheter establish a new peripheral access site for the vasopressor administration, or you can consider a midline or central line. You want to elevate the affected limb to minimize swelling. And then finally, you want to apply warm compresses for 20 minutes every six to eight hours for at least the next 24 to 48 hours after the extravasation occurs. So let's get to the bottom line. Is it safe to use peripheral vasopressors in critically ill patients? And I think there's a couple of really big takeaways just reviewing this paper as well as multiple other papers on this topic. In patients who are critically ill and requiring vasopressor treatment, the use of peripheral IVs are relatively safe with several caveats. Number one, use an antecubital fossa or more proximal vein. These are generally larger veins, which allow for larger IVs like an 18 or 20 gauge, but more importantly, when we're putting the IV in, if you have a larger diameter of a vein, you're less likely to go through the backside of that vein. So therefore, you're likely to have less extravasation. Number two, choose the longest catheter possible. 
Too often I see people using standard IVs and they don't get enough of the catheter into the vein. And when this happens, that's when those catheters come out and that's when we see extravasation events. Number three, do not run the infusions for greater than two to four hours. The longer you run these things, the more likely you're to have an extravasation event. Number four, use a dilute concentration and yet as small a volume as possible. So typically, norepinephrine comes in several concentrations, and you'll talk to your pharmacist to see what is the most dilute concentration that will give you the smallest volume. This is really important when extravasation events occur. Number five, have an IV observation protocol. You can't just start these infusions and start running these things and not check on them for two to four hours. Somebody needs to be looking at the site where the vasopressor is running every 15 or 30 minutes to minimize the volume. And then number six, the final take-home is have an extravasation protocol because at two o'clock in the morning when this thing happens, you need to know how to handle it. All right, let's just do an overall review here. So first, the management of spontaneous pneumothorax. Remember that watchful waiting, even for fairly large pneumothoraces, is a reasonable option. Next, consider protocols for microdosing buprenorphine for those ED patients with opioid use disorder who are likely to go into withdrawal really soon, but who are not in withdrawal when you actually see them. Next, the two pediatric elbow fractures to think about besides supracondylars, the ones that are really easy to miss are the lateral epicondyle fracture, and the medial condyle fracture. So the lateral epicondyle fracture typically occurs in kids ages 3 to 8. And think of the E in the crito mnemonic, which normally closes at the age of 10. And for the medial epicondyle fractures, which usually happen in kids 12 to 16 years old, think of the I in the crito mnemonic. Next, the Canadian TIA score, which is on the verge of being validated. It reliably places patients into low, medium, and high-risk categories, and that can help you with disposition decisions as well as who should get dual antiplatelet therapy. Next, the Pediatric Surviving Sepsis Guidelines 2020 recommend not giving big boluses up front unless you have a PICU nearby or if the kid is hypotensive. Use Ringer's lactate. Epinephrine or norepinephrine are considered first-line vasopressors, and steroids should not routinely be given for fluid-resistant shock. Finally, in adults, peripheral vasopressors are generally safe, but you need to be on the lookout for extravasation and know how to manage it when you see it. Now, don't forget to check out the EM Cases newsletter if you haven't signed up already, the Quiz Vault for the best intest-enhanced learning, and the relatively new ECG cases if you want to brush up on your ECG interpretation skills. Until next time, stay safe, be strong, and know that we're all in this together. <laughs>